You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Um, We are going to be continuing through Genesis. We're in chapter 43 today. It's been quite a journey through the whole book. Uh, Chapter 42 through 45 is essentially one unit. You really should read the whole thing together, but to preach on 42 through 45 at the same time, we would be here for a while. And so trying to chunk it piece by piece, seeing what um, is essential for us to understand each week. Um, Last week, talking about when the past suddenly forces itself upon you and you have to deal with it. And this week, we're going to be talking about the fact that life is a test. And so when we think about these units as a whole, it really, it shows us, um, if you've done any sort of typology study within the Bible, there's certain characters or events or things that allude to Christ to come. And so this is one of those real big unit events where Joseph and his brothers and what's going on is a representation of Jesus and his interactions with the world. Him coming to the world and going through a time of deep suffering on our behalf, going to the pit on our behalf, preparing the way on our behalf, and then being um, rising again to be sitting at the right hand of the Father and being able to bring salvation to the whole world. But what's interesting from that, when he rises and he brings salvation to the whole world, the whole world is not immediately saved. In order to be saved, you must go to the Savior. And even once you go to the Savior, it's not that simple yet. Because when you go to him, you must acknowledge him. You must choose him. And you must be agreed that you will not remain as you are. You are going to accept who he is and who he is going to make you into. You are not going to be the same. And so we see that actually within this whole account and that God is going to put things in your life that test where you are at as little, it's not so much a test for God to know because he already knows it's a test for you to know where you're at. And that's exactly what Joseph does with his, with his brothers here. He's going to test their character through situations. Um, I normally bring up my own big, large water bottle because I get very dry, but I have this little one here just simply actually for an illustration today. Some of you may have seen it before. Um, If you've been here for a length of time, it was one of Steve's favorite illustrations, and I've always liked it, Um, but it really is going to drive to the point home of what we're talking about today. So it's going to be very quick. All right. Why did water come out? So there's varying responses in the audience. For some, probably a response of perhaps something you've heard before. Others, maybe the very first time. There are a few of you that said, because I shook the bottle. Now it makes sense. You shake it, water came out. So I'm going to give a little inflection. Why did water come out? That what was in it. If I emptied this bottle into my much larger one and I shook it again, would water come out? No, it wouldn't. If I filled it with soda and I shook it again, would water come out? No. So it really depends on what's in the bottle. You are the bottle. I am the bottle. Shaking's going to happen. We like to blame the shaking. (laughs) But it's not the shaking that causes what to come 
out. What's already in there is going to come out when you are shaken. We're going to talk about a bunch of verses at the very end of this where it's, don't be surprised when the shaking happens. The shaking's going to happen. You want to make sure that what comes out is life-giving water of Christ. And the only way life-giving water of Christ comes out of you is if life-giving water of Christ is in you. And if you are filled with delicious, wonderful, delightful Coca-Cola, which is terrible for you, but is delicious. And Coca-Cola, just so we get it, is representing sin. (laughs) I'm not getting down on Coca-Cola. I love Coca-Cola. But it's not good for you. Sin is not good for you. But if you're full of it, that's what's going to come out of you when you're shaken. You've got to be able to pour all of that out and allow God to pour you out as an offering unto him and then allow him to fill you again. That water will make sure that you will never thirst again. In order to do that, you must go to the Savior. You must allow yourself to be changed. You must endure the trials. You must look at them as opportunities to grow. Because it's perfectly possible for you to go through trials and tribulations and pain and just through the whole time, woe is me. Oh, great, I'm glad the trial is done now and to have not grown at all. We have to look at every trial, every difficulty, every challenge in life as an opportunity to grow more into the likeness of Christ. Looking at the brothers, looking at how they walk through this, this idea that life is a test. Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to them, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you'll not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? (laughs) They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? (laughs) And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we will rise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. So the first thing we have here is Jacob's frustration. And Jacob's frustration is born of something that we all tend to do. He's judging them by his strengths. So we consider Jacob. We actually haven't talked about him in a little while. But Jacob is cunning. He is crafty. He is shrewd. He knows what to say, and he knows what to do. He's a very capable individual. He made a few mistakes in his life, but he works hard. He made actually a lot of good decisions along the way as well few mistakes, but a very capable person, knows how to deal with people, knows how to deal with the situation. He has learned the very essential lesson that he's complaining to them about out of Proverbs. Sorry, my notes 
Okay, went away. Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He opens wide his lips, comes to ruin. There is so many opportunities in life where saying too much will get you in trouble. If they didn't ask, they don't, you don't need to tell them. You don't need to tell them everything. Sometimes less is more. One of my favorite Proverbs, I didn't write it down here, but it's even a fool is deemed intelligent when he closes his mouth. <laughs> I learned that one as a child because I just wanted to fit in. I was a little awkward. It took me a long time to start feeling like I was a normal boy. Um, but it's this idea of I was weird. I'm okay with being weird now. I like it. It's unique. It's me. <laughs> but I figured out a way to present well to the rest of the world. And often it was just, I don't need to say anything right now. That's an important lesson to learn. And that's what he's concerned about his boys. I have so much difficult trusting you. You just keep making these mistakes. You keep getting us in trouble. You make bad choices. You just don't know when to, mm. And they are responding saying, we didn't do anything wrong this time, dad. How on earth could we have known? So we need to be cautious in that to not necessarily judge others by our strengths. They're doing the best they can, and they really are at this point doing the best they can, but they can't be who they are not. We cannot be who we are not. We can go to God and seek him to change us, and we can work on those challenging things, and we can endure to not sin, but we are not all going to have the same strengths, and that's good. That makes us a diversity. It makes us a community that bands together, and we support and love and encourage one another, but we're not the same, and we don't all need to be the same. So we have to be careful not to judge others by where we are strongest. So then we look at the difference in Judah here and how Jacob is actually going to agree to Judah's proposal where he wouldn't have before. There's a little bit of a difference in who Judah is, who Judah has become at this point. So when we look at the first four brothers, we look at Reuben, who doesn't know what to do and doesn't know what to say. In chapter 49, Jacob is going to talk about all of his sons, and Reuben he's going to describe as unstable as water. <laughs> not a person you're trusting with your youngest son, and you're worried for their life. You're not going to trust the person who is unstable as water. Then we go to Simeon. Simeon's in jail. Can't rely on him right now. Then we look to Levi. Levi is violence. He is a vindictive, angry man. His wrath is harsh and cruel. In response to an injustice, not only did he punish the wrongdoer, he killed off the whole town. If I need someone who's going to be careful with what they do, I'm not sending him with you. And then we get to Judah. Judah made a lot of mistakes. We read a whole chapter of Judah's big mistakes. But Judah, unlike the others, humbly acknowledged his wrong. He learned from his mistakes when he wandered away from the family, when he just embraced the world, and he was humiliated through it. And he acknowledged it. And Judah, by this account, shows that after that, he went back home to where he had belonged. He's with everyone else right now. He is no longer away. And we know that 
the family that he sired there, he would have brought back with him. He's doing right as best as he can now. And he actually has a little bit of his father's abilities and talents. He knows what to say. He knows what to say to his dad. He's much more compelling than Reuben. And his dad's going to agree. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachios, nuts, and almonds, all the delicious things, which is interesting. It should spark for a moment. Hey, isn't there a famine in the land? <laughs> now, there is. You cannot survive off of pistachios and almonds. The body needs bread. The body needs something heartier that goes farther. Sometimes you just need calories. And so although these things might still be growing, there may not be a lot of them. We actually witnessed this very same phenomenon last year in our county, that when we had a late frost that killed off 85% of the fruit in our county before it ever had a chance to grow. Devastating to the fruit business here. Devastating to the wineries here. Imagine losing 85% of your income for a year. There's something there, but it's not a lot. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Very optimistic. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother, your other brother, and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Maybe it was an oversight. It's, an, it's a very optimistic idea. And if it had just been the one bag and the one thing of money, it could have been seen as an oversight. But when everybody's sack has their money in it, it's hard to believe that. That's what they're scared about. Last chapter, we ended with that. They're terrified of going back because all the money's in there. They're terrified that they're being set up. They've been accused of spies and they were sent back with all the money. And they were given this option. You will either come back with your brother or you will not come back at all. Meaning you can choose to starve or you can choose to take this risk. You're going to have to come back and bring some more with you. And this is the concern that he's going, they're not going to believe us. They're just going to seize us. They're going to make this claim that we stole the money and that we're spies and we're goners. That's the worry. It's a legitimate worry. It feels like that's what's going on. It's all a part of a test that Joseph is putting them through this emotional ordeal, how will they respond in this way? How loyal will they be? But they don't know that. They're just having to live through it right now. And so in order to best have the best possible outcome, Jacob's having a little bit of a teaching moment here. Bring the man a gift. Proverbs 18, 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. It is amazing how far a small token will take you. Is that when you're going into a meeting or a discussion or you're trying to woo a client, just a simple, I considered you, I thought about something you might like, and I brought it with no strings attached. I mean, there are strings attached, you're hoping, but you're giving of a gift. It disarms somebody. It makes them feel considered. It makes them feel special and important. There's a reason people wine and dine clients. There's a reason that they send lobbyists 
to try to woo politicians. And they take them out to dinner and they buy them tickets to football and baseball games. And it works is why people do it. It disarms somebody. It makes them more willing to want to listen to what you're going to say. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin was with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready. For men, the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we brought back so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. <laughs> that's what's important right now. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food and we came to the lodging place. We opened up our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward. I feel like he's kind of an underrated character here. But we have to realize who he is and the importance of him in this entire account. The steward knows full well what's going on here. Meaning Joseph must trust him implicitly. Because the steward's the one who put the money back. And the steward's the one who knew what to say. He's lying to them right now. He's telling them what they need to know. And without question, he set people up and framed them for a crime they didn't commit. And he's going to do it again. <laughs> Have we considered that? When we put it into those wordings, he's setting people up for a crime they didn't commit that will cause them to be enslaved. This is the implicit trust that Joseph has given to this one man. Now, I don't necessarily condone doing that. But I would say that in our lives, it's important to have somebody that you do trust, that you can rely on, that you can open up to, that you can be honest with, that you can let your guard down around. We can't be islands unto ourselves. There's only so much you will ever be able to do if you're just trying to do it all alone. We have to have someone in our life that we can trust and rely upon and be vulnerable to, because this guy could betray him at any point. And that's true of anybody in our lives. That's often the fear of being vulnerable is that somehow that trust will be broken and I will be hurt by it. But that will lead to loneliness and it'll lead to a lack of effectiveness. At some point, we have to be willing to be open and we have to be willing to trust. And so these are the beginnings of the tests. So they thought they were going to be enslaved and they very well might have been had they not passed this test. The first test that they were set up on was that are they honest and are they faithful? Honesty and fidelity. Are you actually truthfully telling me that your brother and father are alive? Joseph has no reason to trust them. The last time he saw them, they enslaved him. No reason to trust these men. Are they alive? Bring proof. 
And as an extra measure, I'm going to keep your brother here, the one you actually like and love, and see how far you're willing to go to help him. Because I'm going to set you up so that you yourself have the high potential of being enslaved if you come back here. Are you still willing to come back to save him? And they did. They knew the risks. They still came back for Simeon and for the lives of their family. First test. But there was two more to come. The second one, are you still a jealous group? You may be okay here, but if, some, if jealousy pops up again, are you going to betray somebody again? Are you going to hang them out to dry? What are you going to do? We're going to see that in this chapter. And the next chapter next week, which Chris will be bringing to us, is going to talk about how do you actually have faithful and loyal love to those you may not even like at all? Do you hold on to the truth of love God above all others and love your neighbor as yourself? Will you abide by this when the life of the one whom is the favored one, who you've always had challenges and difficulties with, will you stand up for their life or will you be fine sacrificing them for the sake of yourself? This is what he will make them walk through again. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So the first thing, the three tables, this has to do with rank, class, and ethnicity. Thankfully to a old Greek historian named Herodotus. He was able to write down some uh, important information for us to understand about these different cultures. It was not uncommon for a particular culture or group to think, we are the only civilized people and everyone else is barbarians. The Greeks did it. The Egyptians did it. The Israelites did it. When we look through all of the New Testament, we see these different confrontations, these issues. They refuse to eat with Gentiles. It's because of this very same thing. They're unclean, 
and we are, we cannot eat with them, is the mindset here, which is why they won't eat with the brothers. It's not why they're not going to eat with Joseph. Joseph is every bit considered Egyptian at this point. They're not going to eat at his table because they don't have the standing to eat at his table. He is second in the land. The only buddy that's going to be invited to Joseph's table is his family or Pharaoh's family or someone who is really high ranking in their government. So he will be sitting by himself and everyone else will be served from his table. Now, the amazement of the brothers. Several things going on here. One, we haven't been enslaved. This is great. (laughs) Two, we're dining with royalty today. We came down, we thought we were going to be enslaved, and now we're sitting with the second most powerful person in the entire land. That doesn't normally happen. You don't go and get accused of espionage and then get invited to the king's palace. This is not something that goes on. It's striking. And then on top of that, they're being sat in order from eldest to youngest. They didn't do that on their own. They would have been seated. So the amazement as they look around, they're all, except for Benjamin, within seven years of each other, in the ages of 36 to 45. They don't look a whole lot different age-wise. So for someone to be able to just spotted. 11 men, and the difference exactly for birth order is amazing. And a little bit shocking and a little bit worrying. How much does this guy already know? (laughs) And then the favor given to Benjamin. He's given five times the amount of all the others. And a little bit of context. They slaughtered an animal. They're eating barbecue today. This is not like our day and age where meat is super duper common as fare to be eaten. This was the time when the common meal would have always had some sort of bread or grain item, some vegetables that were growing seasonally, some sort of milk product, whether that be cheese or curds or, or yogurt of the sort. And that would have been it. That had been the common meal of the day, maybe a pepper paste or something of that sort regionally. But there was very rarely would they've eaten meat because animals were way more valuable alive. They raised sheep and goats and oxen. They don't hardly ever talk about raising cows or pigs. Pigs because they're not clean. Cows because they're, they're giant, they eat a lot, and they don't provide anything else other than meat, really, at least at that time. So they raised sheep because wool is super valuable. They raise goats and they use the goats for milk. And so that's almost all of their milk products would have been goat's milk. Valuable creatures, much more valuable alive than dead. So when they made a sacrifice, it really is a sacrifice to them. They're losing money year by year by that animal not being alive. So it was rare that they would have eaten meat. And it's a famine. Everyone's extra hungry, and Benjamin is receiving five times as amount of this special meal than anyone else is getting. This is the test of jealousy. How are you going to respond when the boy who's put in the way between the brother you love, the lives of your family, the favorite of your father, also is going to get five times the amount, the special treatment from the highest guy in this other land who is accusing you of espionage and setting you up for theft. How are you going to respond when he is treated so well and you have been not? How do they respond? Awesome. He hikes Benjamin. We're going to leave today. They drank and ate and were merry. 
They were happy about it. They didn't care. They weren't worried that he got special treatment. They were happy they were leaving. Everything's going to be okay, and it's because of Benjamin. It's not the same response with Joseph. They've grown. But it's not the last thing they're going to be tested in. So what can be learned? Well, first, so I'm jumping in a little bit here. Matt may cover some of this in his class to come in a few weeks. Jesus in the Old Testament. Certain typologies of how God interacts with the world. What is this event, this setting, this whole unit alluding to in the future? And I found actually three different areas what it's alluding to in this area of how we interact with God. The first one was an actual event that happened on the road to Emmaus. So right here we have the world dining with the Savior. And they don't know who he truly is. But it will be revealed later. It'll actually be revealed the next day. The Savior has come. He went through pain, trials, difficulties, sufferings, all those things I talked about at the beginning of the service. And he rose. And he was seated at the, second, at the right hand of the, of the ruler. He's given all power, all dominion, all authority. And they have come to the Savior and they're sitting with him for a meal. But they don't know who he is. See, we see this reflected through the disciples' time with, jo- with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has died. He's risen again. But they don't know where he is. And they're, they're very despondent about this. They didn't, they didn't even truly know who Jesus was at this point because they had despaired. They're not going to become the disciples we know, the ones that would die for their faith, until after their realization of who Jesus really is. And so when we look at Luke 24, those verses 25 to 35, I'm not going to read them all in this moment, Jesus meets them on the road, and he points out all the things that needed to happen, as Joseph will do in the chapters to come. All this had to happen for salvation to happen. And they turn aside with him, and they share a meal with him, and then they realize he is the Savior. In this, it's literal. It's understanding that God truly is the Savior of the world, that he has made a way where no one else could, and no one else can. This is the only way to salvation. There's also a figurative element here of what's going on, not only what happened then in that moment on Emmaus, but what happened right now for us. In Revelation 3, it says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is figurative. I don't think anyone here has actually sat down with the physical Jesus and ate a meal with him. But he says this of each and every one of us. If you accept me, I'm at the door, I'm knocking. If you invite me in, I will sit down with you and I will dine with you. But it's not a physical meal, it's a spiritual meal. It's the bread of life 
the waters of ever-giving life from Christ that will sustain us through all things where we shall never hunger and never thirst again because now we have Jesus. It's not only acknowledging him as Savior, it's accepting him as Savior. And the last thing I found is that it's also alluding to a mystery of what will be. There's what was, there's what is for us right now, but there's still something to come. Out of Revelation 19.9, it says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. All the nations of the earth have been invited to dine with the Savior at the end of days. When everything is said, everything is done, the old world has passed away. It's been rolled up as a scroll, as the sky. And the new world comes, and the bride is presented to Christ, spotless without blemish, and the bride of Christ is the church. And it's open to all tribes, all nations, all people without reservations. And those that have acknowledged him will dine with him. Is it a literal banquet? I don't know. I really hope it is. But the meaning, the essential understanding from it is an overcoming of death itself. Is that by going to Joseph, by going to Jesus, they are escaping certain death. They will die without him. We will die without Christ. All of us are mortal death, but the second death thereafter and we can choose as the alternative, life evermore with our Savior. And so life is a test. As we walk through this, as we choose Jesus, as we choose to be changed, there are gonna be certain things that come our way. Some trials are going to be because you chose Christ. First Peter four, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! Who likes to rejoice during the trials? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Simply by choosing Jesus, you will be treated differently. There will be trials, there will be challenges, there will be pains, some more severe than others. We are in a blessed nation in that you are not going to be killed for your faith. Whatever you may feel about this nation otherwise and the way laws and things are going, you will not be executed for being a Christian. But in other nations right now around the world, that is not true. There are people that will be executed for being a Christian, and they are told the same. Hey, when trials come your way, be joyful. We sometimes need that perspective and that scope that this is the degree that God is speaking to us. Because you've chosen me, you might go through horrific things. But remember the joy to come, what is soon to be revealed. Some trials aren't because you chose Christ, but it's for the sake of Christ, where it's going to be a deciding factor. Are you actually going to live what you said you will live? Are you going to acknowledge me before people, or are you going to cave the moment any pressure comes on? Matthew 10, 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father 
who is in heaven. There will be times in our life where you will be tested, even now, even not facing death, where are you actually a follower of Christ? And you get to choose in that moment to say yes or to deny it or to hide from it. And God is very clear. If you've chosen me, you better have chosen me. And last, some trials are so that we become more like Christ. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So much easier said than lived. So Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to become more like you. We pray during these difficult times, during the trials of life, we feel your presence intimately upon us, encouraging us, supporting us, spurring us on, that we may be strong in you to reflect your light out into this world. Amen.